Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Worcester Talking Newspaper, recorded at Colin Chance House on Thursday the 6th of June. I'm Jenny Tansy and with me reading the news are... Sue Perry. Hannah Green. And Nigel Green is our engineer. Carol Hartle is working on the administration. And this week's copying team are Bernard and Doreen Potter and Janet Bailey. Thanks to Worcester News for all our information. The headlines this week are Friday. Boss jailed after crashing tipper van into coach. Saturday, first bus for sale. Monday, fraud surgeon must pay NHS Trust 3037 sorry I beg your pardon must pay national trust 337000 pounds tuesday up in flames wednesday rough sleepers death what are council doing to hide and thursday back of the net um i'll pass you over to sue for the first headline a construction firm boss has been jailed after crashing a tipper van into a coach and fleeing the scene before refusing to give a breath sample to police. Oliver Hooker was seen by officers driving a Ford Transit tipper van erratically and without a front number plate before they pulled him over. The 23-year-old, sorry, 32-year-old, who was suspended from driving at the time, began acting aggressively with officers who noticed he smelt strongly of alcohol and he was detained in a police van. A few minutes earlier, he had also crashed into an Aston's coach's coach and knocked off one of its wing mirrors before driving off, it later emerged. Prosecutor Sakwat Riaz told magistrates on May the 23rd. On being taken to the police station, the defendant gave custody staff his brother Jake Hooker's name and said he couldn't give a breath sample because he felt unwell. He previously had been the driver in an accident in which his sister's partner died. Belinda Aris, defending, said her client had been drinking heavily the night before. He was pulled over in Pickersley Road, Malvern at around 2.55pm on February the 27th. She said he was about to start a large job job worth thousands of pounds to the business and the tipper needed moving on to site, but Hooker had been let down at the last minute. He foolishly decided to move it himself, she said. The solicitor went on to say, while driving, the defendant took his eye off the ball for a few seconds prior to the crash and later panicked and gave his brother's details to the police. Miss Aris told the court her client drinks to excess every other night and has an unenviable driving record as a result, all stemming from a car accident in which one of his passengers died. Hooker set up the growing construction and landscaping business in the last few months, the court heard. But his driving disqualification meant an employee had to pick him up from his home in Gloucester Road, Malvern, every day while a long-term relationship broke down due to his drinking. The defendant was given a community order in August last year, but having breached it, was given a suspended sentence in March. Jane Stewart of the probation service said Hooker had continually missed appointments with his probation manager. He also had a curfew from 7pm till 5am and Miss Aris added, he has no social life, he can't have a social life, he accepts that. 
Hooker accepted charges of driving without insurance and whilst disqualified, obstructing an officer, failure to provide a specimen, failing to stop after a road accident, driving with no front registration <coughs> and driving without due care and attention. Magistrates disqualified him from driving for four years and jailed him for 20 weeks. And on Saturday, June the 1st, the headline was First Bus for Sale. The future of Worcester's buses is uncertain after the parent owners of one of the county's major operators put it up for sale. The Worcester News has been told that older buses have been coming back into the fleet and there is a speculation that development could even lead to newer buses moving to other areas. This paper has also seen a memo to staff saying they should keep the wheels rolling and try and keep a positive attitude to the decision and the future. First Group announced it would be pursuing strategic options through a sale or other means to offload the bus part of its business in a statement on Thursday. First, which along with Diamond is the biggest bus operator in Worcestershire, has said it will continue to run services as usual and staff will be kept up to date in the coming months. First Bus employs around 17,500 staff, including 13,450 drivers. In the memo to staff, First's managing director Nigel Egerton said... The decision has no bearing whatsoever on the performance, dedication and commitment shown by our local teams over the years. It is solely a business decision. We will continue to serve our customers and run our local businesses to the same high standard we are used to. Analysts say the move is seen as appeasing the company's shareholders who had pressed for a breakup of the group. Details of the overhaul came as First Group posted pre-tax losses of £97.9 million for the year to March 31st against £326.9 million the previous year. Last year, First Bus relaunched the 144 and 144A as Salt Road buses and last month they launched the new Edward Elgar-themed Nimrod bus route. But the source who leaked the staff statement said, you may see more and more older buses coming back and newer buses being moved on. They have spoken over the last few months about rebranding and revamping when, in fact, they have transferred the newer buses to Leicester and brought older refurbished vehicles back in. A first group spokesman said, we announced that we will be pursuing strategic operations through a sale or other means to separate first bus from first group. Please be assured that as this process unfolds, we will continue to operate our services as usual, working closely with our local authority partners and demonstrating our commitment to our customers through the service we offer them. In recent years, we have improved customer service at First Bus by investing in our buses and new technology, transforming our networks and making operations and maintenance more efficient. As a result, 
First Bus is now on a much stronger footing and we believe it is the right time to pursue structural alternatives so the business can continue to improve excellent service, ensure the best possible future for our staff and continue to meet stakeholders' requirements. The hard work and commitment of our employees has ensured that First Bus is now well placed for the future and we will keep them up to date over the coming months. Readers have had their say to the announcement on Worcester News social media. Hazel Sarah said, Let's hope someone buys it that knows how to run a bus service. While Joanne Brixton said, We always end up with second-hand buses and they are always breaking down. Dave Green said, Think buses do a good job considering the amount of traffic congestion, always easy to criticise from the sidelines, yet no one has offered a better option. And Jamie Holmes said, Whoever runs the service will just be the same, no difference to staff or customers. This headline is from Monday, June the 3rd. A rogue surgeon who lied to get a top job at Worcestershire Hospital will have to pay 337000 in compensation to the NHS. Disgraced surgeon Sudeep Sarkar appeared via video link from prison at Worcester Crown Court on Friday where he was told he would be stripped of assets to recover the cost of the salary he should never have received in the first place. The 50-year-old, serving a six-year jail sentence for fraud, was ordered to pay the compensation (coughs) to Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust, the organisation that he deceived and whose patients lay at risk, and he put them at risk. We have previously reported how Judge Robert Jukes, QC, said that the Trust, which runs Worcestershire Royal Hospital in Worcester, had paid out nearly £2 million to settle the claims of patients he operated upon, and the Trust's reputation had also been damaged. At the Proceeds of Crime application hearing, the fraudster appeared gaunt and far slimmer than he had during his two-week trial last year. Wearing a yellow T-shirt in contrast to a smart suit, he appeared impassive throughout the hearing. The surgeon, previously of Botany Road Broadstairs in Kent, was jailed for six years by Judge Dukes after being convicted of fraud in February last year. Sarker had denied making a false representation to Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust so he could secure the £80,000 a year job at Redditch's Alexandra Hospital, sister hospital of Worcestershire Royal Hospital. Mr Sarker worked at the Trust for 14 months until his suspension in October 2012, which led to his later dismissal. The jury agreed that Sarker, who had a higher mortality rate in terms of the patients he operated on, compared to two other Alex surgeons, exaggerated his experience in laparoscopic surgical procedures in his interview. During the hearing, Prosecutor Jacob Hallam QC, who appeared via video link from the Old Bailey in London, placed the benefit figure that is the salary Sarka received from the Trust at £347,214, which took into account gross compound interest since the fraud 
the benefit figure would otherwise have been 327,214. Mr Hallam said, on that fraud, the Crown suggested it is the salary he got as a result of the lie and the defence suggests it's rather different to that. <clears throat> Sebastian Winnett, defending, argued that Sarka had taken a modest pay cut to work for the Worcestershire Acute Hospital's NHS Trust. Did he benefit? He says not, said Mr Winnett. He also argued that the majority of the work Sarka undertook during the period of his criminal conduct, conduct was done properly and that he should not be deprived of the entirety of his wages, only those he earned from the work he was prohibited from doing. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said, I should proceed, should I not, on the basis that Mr Sarka would not have had the position at all if he had not committed the fraud. Mr Hallam said this was correct, arguing that the evidence was essentially that he got the job because of the things he said that weren't true. However, Mr Winnett argued that the salary Sarka received had not been invested in capital and had been dissipated in ordinary living expenses. As a result, he said there was nothing to show that Sarka had benefited from the change in the value, describing the £20,000 difference in the two figures as a fairly significant adjustment to the overall value of the benefit. Judge Nicholas Cartwright said he would take a fair and pragmatic approach and set the figure on the basis that a person receiving a healthy salary could be expected to spend half and invest half, setting the benefit figure at £337.214. Sarka had available assets totalling 562,875, including a £420,000 house in Queensgate in South Kensington, London. He also has houses in Bemerside Avenue, Glasgow and Botany Road in Kent. The judge made a confiscation order of £337.214 and Sarka was given three months on his release from prison to pay or face a default prison sentence of three years and eight months. Judge Cartwright said, I direct that the confiscated amount be paid as compensation to the trust in question, Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust. Sarka was also ordered to pay a contribution towards costs of £5,000, which also must be paid within three months of his release from prison. During the original sentencing hearing, Mr Hallam said doubts were raised about Sarka's ability when he was observed and an operation was stopped. Sarka was later suspended. In passing sentence last year, Judge Dukes said Sarka had a high level of culpability because he had been in a position of trust, carrying out operations that put people's lives at risk. Judge Dukes said that at the time you, hold, held highly you told highly significant lies, you grossly exaggerated your experience. A spokesman for Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust said on Friday, we are aware of today's judgment and welcome the court's findings in our favour. And on Tuesday, June the 4th, the headline was Up in Flames. Smoke could be seen across Worcester as firefighters battled a blaze at an industrial unit. The fire broke out just before midday 
on Tuesday at Aramid, sorry, yesterday, so this would be Monday, at Aramid, one of the businesses at the Blackpool Industrial Estate. Large plumes of black smoke were visible from the centre of Worcester and video footage from eyewitnesses showed a ball of fire in the roof of the Aramid unit sending smoke billowing into the sky. The fire caused a mass evacuation of the units on the Cosgrove close side of the industrial estate, including the Ford dealership and Luxfer Superform. It is reported that wax tanks at the facility caught fire, causing the evacuation. Four fire engines, along with a command vehicle, an ambulance and several police cars were at the scene where members of evacuated staff were standing outside waiting to hear more news. Police closed the entrance to the industrial estate, telling members of the public to avoid the area while the fire was still burning. Aramid Chief Executive Officer Howard Kimberley said, Earlier today, emergency services attended a fire at our factory in Worcester. We can confirm that no injuries occurred and that the incident is now over. We are currently assessing the full extent of the damage. However, we believe that the fire was limited to a small area and was quickly brought under control. Whilst there may be some short-term disruption to our operations in Worcester, we do not expect this incident to have a long-term impact and we expect to be able to return to normal operations soon. We're working with Hereford and Worcester Fire and Rescue Service to determine the cause of the fire. Aeromet would like to thank all of the emergency services that attended the incident. While the incident was ongoing, Aramid spokesman Adam Lucas said, We're not exactly sure what has caused this fire, so we will have to wait and see what the fire service says as their investigation is ongoing. Fortunately, no one has been hurt, so even though it's not the ideal way to start the week, we are glad that everyone is safe. We're still waiting for the fire service to tell us what has happened exactly, but until then we have told everyone that they can have that they can go home for the day. The headline for Wednesday, June the fifth Rough Sleepers Death. What are council doing to hide? A homelessness campaigner is angry at a council's decision not to release the findings of an internal review into a rough sleeper's death. Worcester City Council told Hugo Suck his Freedom of Information request for the report into the unidentified person who apparently died after falling ill and being taken to hospital would breach data protection. No personal information or anything else surrounding their death understood to have taken place since fellow homeless homeless man Carden Banfield died in 2016 has been released. Mr. Sugg, founder of Hugo's Earthquake Campaign, said, There is a concern with proposed changes to homeless services that this review may be brushed under the carpet. Last summer, the results of an independent review into Mr. Bamfield's death were released and revealed several missed opportunities on the part of the authorities that may have kept him on the streets unnecessarily. The decision to raise the findings of that first independent review 
set a precedent, but the Council has refused to repeat this 12 months on. It begs the question, what changes have the Council brought in since the Mr. Banfield review? Without the review being released, you would ask, why haven't we learnt lessons from Carden's death, said Mr. Sugg. Worcestershire Safeguarding Adults Board in current, is currently undertaking a thematic review of deaths of rough sleepers in the city and Morven, which also includes two men who died in the, in the later part of October and December. The Council has submitted its findings regarding the in, uh, unidentified death to the broad to the board, sorry, to help inform their review and has said some details will come out as a result of that. Mr. Stoughton of the Corporate Policy and Strategy team told Mr. Sugg via email, the council does not currently have consent of living in individuals identified in its review to release personal information. While any details relating to the deceased may reasonably re be regarded as confidential, he added. Mr. Stoughton said the board will publish its own findings in due course, while some of the results of the Council's review may become public, publicly available at a later date. In response, Mr. Sugg told the Worcester News, the reasons sounds dubious, with information regarding the deaths of Mr. Banfield, Mr. Buksarski and Mr. Spari all already in the public domain. What are Worcester Council trying to hide? Someone else has died. There's a huge issue. He said the council revealed to the press that Mr. Banfield had died and gave out various pieces of personal information, but questioned why they have been keeping this latest death under wraps prior to the safeguarding review even being launched. Mr. Sugg said he was told by a third party that the person had died and was then told by the council, yeah, there has been another death, but we are not releasing it. The county council has cut funding into homeless prevention services and is relying on the six district councils to stump up the rest of the £530,000 needed. A total of 933 homeless cases are reported in Worcester between April 2016 and March 2018, more than 70% of the 1,310 cases of homelessness reported across the country. The County Council said it would contribute £100,000 a year to the service for the next two years, leaving a £165,000 a year gap in funding to be made up by the District Councils. The high demand in Worcester means that the City Council will make, will make the biggest contribution of £234,300 across the length of the contract. The City Council's Policy and Resources Committee was last night expected to recommend the Council uses £2,065,000 from an affordable housing fund to pay for the Homeless Prevention Service from October this year to the end of September 2021. That it includes an additional £30,000 buffer. The current service, which is a county-wide service commissioned by the City Council on behalf of the other district councils responsible for housing, includes Malvern Hills and Witchaven District Council, ran out in March. The City Council agreed to extend the contract 
until the end of September to allow for a new service to be found and eventually commissioned. Mr. Sugg, who previously spent time living on the street, sent off his FOI on October the 9th asking for all internal Worcester City Council reviews into rough sleeping or homeless deaths since Carden Banfield's death in 2016. A City Council spokesman said yesterday, an internal review of this FOI response will have requested, sorry, has been requested and will be carried out in line with the service standards published at www.worcester.gov.uk forward slash commonly dash requested dash information. And this is the headline for Thursday, June the 6th. Back of the net. A new multi-million state-of-the-art hockey centre has been backed by the City Council after it agreed to loan £2.1 million for it to be built. Worcester City Council agreed to lease land on the old porcelain ground off Droitwich Road to give RGS and the Worcester Hockey Club the opportunity to transform it into an international standard facility. The City Council has also agreed to loan £2.1 million to cover the cost of building the hockey centre with an opening planned for September 2020. The facility would also provide Worcester Hockey Club, which boasts around 500 members, a permanent home. Councillor Mark Bayliss, leader of the City Council, said he was disappointed the University of Worcester was not contributing any money to help build the centre when speaking at the Council's Policy and Resources Committee on Tuesday, June the 4th. He said the university had a reputation of sporting excellence and had attracted people to the city on that basis. Councillor Bayliss said that with a surplus of 8.7 million last year, it was not unreasonable for the university to put their money where their mouth is. He said that the facility and the leasing land to RGS and Worcester Hockey Club at a low rent was acceptable, but he was concerned by the financial risk of borrowing public money to invest in a sporting facility. Councillor Bayliss said, Yes, there are some guarantees that are provided, but we are still mortgaging Worcester taxpayers' future for a £2.1 million loan. I think there is a principle here as well which I think we should enter carefully about funding sporting institutions and using taxpayers' pounds in order to do that. The University of Worcester, whose pitches are currently used by Worcester Hockey Club but regularly flood and would need a major refurbishment within the next two years, had already expressed an interest in using the new facility regularly. Hockey pitches at Nunnery Wood would also need to be resurfaced in the next two years to bring them up to a national standard and moving to the new hockey facility would also free up space for the already oversubscribed football pitches. The international standard pitches pitches would allow Worcester to rival other university cities including Birmingham, Manchester, Nottingham, Sheffield and Durham who make up a significant part of England's hockey's national league. Councillor Jabba Riaz said the centre would be the jewel in the crown of the city and it hoped it would be used by international teams during the upcoming Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. And now for other news. 
An MP has experienced what is what it's like to be visually impaired by taking part in the blindfolded challenge. Nigel Huddleston, MP for Mid Worcestershire, walked the busy streets of Droitwich with trainee support dog in from the charity guide dogs which trains animals. He said walking around blindfolded with Nushka was a very memorable experience. It gave me greater appreciation for the challenges faced by people with sight loss and in particular the need to remove pavement clutter and avoid pavement parking which can cause inconvenience or injury to people with sight impairments. I also now appreciate the huge amount of investment and training required for a guide dog to do their job to such an incredibly high standard. During his walk, Mr Huddleston experienced the obstacles and challenges people with sight loss face every day as they walk around our town centres. He had to navigate around poorly parked cars, blocking the pavement and wheelie bins. Eleanor Stevens guide dogs engagement officer said we are extremely grateful to nigel huddleston mp for taking part in this event and we hope he found the experience useful in understanding how difficult it can be to get around if you're visually impaired guide dogs is campaigning for higher for clearer high streets and a standardized law on pavement parking which ensures that parking on the pavement is only allowed in specifically designated areas. Each dog takes around two years to train to working level and costs more than £50,000. The actual walk in Droitwich took place on May the 17th. Police have called on the City Council to extend a city centre licensing zone due to an increase in alcohol-related crime. West Mercia Police has asked for the city's cumulative impact zone, the CIZ, which looks a which looks to protect areas which have a high density of licensed bars, restaurants, clubs and takeaways from crime, disorder and antisocial behaviour, to be extended to cover a greater area of the city centre. Worcester City Council already has a cumulative impact zone which covers most of the city centre, including Angel Place, Fourgate Street, Friar Street, New Street, Lowesmore, The Butts and The Cross. West Mercia Police has asked the City Council to extend the zone to make a simpler and easier identifiable boundary around the city centre. The new zone would run from Castle Street and along the River Severn up to Worcester Cathedral along Fish Street back through City Walls Road, Spring Gardens and St Paul Street around Lowesmore and up Sansom Walk before rejoining Castle Street through Taylor's Lane. West Mercia Police said the number of licensed bars, restaurants, clubs and takeaways in close proximity with each other is clearly linked to increased levels of crime and disorder. Extending the zone's boundary would include many streets that have the potential for applications for licenses in the future in the future police say the force said while these premises are open on these streets many suffer from an overflow of incidents from neighboring areas and if no constraint was put on the streets now the area could suffer from an increase in crime and disorder in the future 
as the city expands. Police figures show that the number of incidents within the current zone increased 11% between 2016 and 2018. The number of alcohol-related incidents has increased by 35% in the same period. The zone plays an important part of the process when the council decides on whether to grant alcohol licences. Applying to open a late-night premise within the zone shifts sorry, within the zone, shifts the burden onto the applicant to prove opening it would not contribute to crime and antisocial behaviour in the city centre. Applications must also show how they promote public safety and protect children from harm. A proposed gin palace in Angel Place and a new KFC in The Cross have all been rejected in recent years over the fears of a rise in crime and disorder. The Council's Licensing and Environment Health Committee meets on June the 10th to decide. The Mayor of Worcester has presented prizes to the first winners of the new Worcester Community Lottery. The city's first citizen, Councillor Alla Ditter, invited two of the new lottery's biggest winners, both Worcester residents, to the Guildhall to present them with their prizes. Audrius Basilius won £250, the largest prize so far to be given out by the new lottery, while Rosemary Goddard scooped a 32GB iPad, a special prize in the very first Worcester lottery draw at the end of April. Worcester Community Lottery was launched last month and gives players the chance to sign up at worcesterlottery.org for entry into a weekly draw and to choose which local causes they want to benefit from their subscription. Players have the chance to win up to £25,000 in the draws. Councillor Ditter said, It's good to see city residents and local good causes really getting involved in the new Worcester Community Lottery. More than 110 local people have already won prizes in the first five draws and so far £3,600 has been raised for 56 good causes. I hope more players come on board so that even more cash can be raised for our city's good causes and the residents they support. Winner Andreas Basilius said, It's amazing. I really didn't expect to win. I think it's a really good thing to support local good causes through the lottery um, and you can win prizes too. Rosemary Goddard said, I think this lottery is a good idea and it's excellent to be able to choose your charity when you play. I've always supported the Swan Theatre, so my lottery ticket goes towards Worcester Live, which runs the theatre. Good causes that have already benefited from the Worcester Community Lottery include youth clubs, sports clubs, arts organisations and medical charities. Local good causes can still sign up by heading to worcesterlottery.org. And the following article was written last week about the forthcoming festival um, for Elgar, but um, I hope you still find it interesting to read about, hear about it. A four-day music festival headlined by leading cellist Raphael Wolfish and the English Symphony Orchestra will celebrate the work of Sir Edward Elgar. Inaugurated last year as a two-day event, this year's festival has now expanded to four days with the theme Elgar for Everyone. 
At the heart of the festival is the composer's cello concerto to be performed by Wolfish and the orchestra on Saturday, June the 1st as part of a gala concert in Worcester Cathedral to mark the centenary of the composer's final masterwork. Festival Artistic Director Kenneth Woods said, Every once in a while we need to step, step back from a very popular work like the Cello Concerto and remind ourselves why it resonates so deeply with so many millions of listeners. It took a number of years and distance from the Edwardian era and World War I to realise how powerfully evocative and nostalgic the music is. Elgar's cello concerto was my pathway into the world of this great composer whose music has had such a profound influence on my life, explained the conductor. From my first encounter with it as a young cellist in America, it cast a spell over me and after all the times I've since played it, heard it and conducted it, its power and honesty continue to amaze me. This also sees a first-time collaboration between the English Symphony Orchestra and Worcester Cathedral Chamber Choir for Donald Fraser's choral arrangement of Elgar's Sea Pictures. The concert closes with Vaughan Williams' Symphony No. 5. Other concerts include performances from the Proteus Ensemble, Elgar and Debussy Sonatas from violin virtuoso Zoe Byers, and pianist Philip Moore, and a song recital featuring the original voice and piano version of Elgar's Sea Pictures. The festival's ethos is demonstrated through educational workshops, talks, poetry, a new Elgar trail, a cello day for families and young players, and the opportunity to play one of the composer's pianos. A petition has been launched to save a heartbroken pensioner's garden after he discovered a housing association will turf over a patch he has been nurturing for 20 years. Fortis Living is spending £200,000 to improve accessibility for his residents as part of an environmental improvement works project. But as a result of the works, Turf will be laid over a patch of garden tended by John Hughes, age 76. Jem Leyland from Worcester, who created the petition, said, It's ridiculous, especially with the length of time he's been keeping it. If there was an issue, it should have been addressed years back. Fortis purport themselves to care about residents and that mental health and well-being matters. It's easy to see that it's all words and no substance. It's a shame that there needs to be a public outcry before things get reversed or even listened to. All that's needed was a little common sense, but Fortis seems to fall short way too often. The petition, which has already received more than 3,200 signatures, will be sent to the Housing Association. Steve Vizard, Assistant Asset Management Director, said, We're always delighted when customers take pride in their neighbourhoods, but we always have to be aware that communal areas are for all who live there and not just for a few. The work is part of a £200,000 programme of local works which will involve the removal of large areas of hard-standing laying turf and improvement accessibility. Our aim is to ensure that everyone living in Sheepscombe Drive 
will benefit from the improvement sorry from the improvement works and we hope they will continue to take pride in their new and much improved communal areas reader donnet croft said bless john he's lovely and he grows flowers for the residents too if they put turf over his little garden he will go downhill he's out in that garden come rain and shine the county council chairman has called for a road bridge that is not fit for purpose after a teenager was hit by a car whilst on the towpath 13-year-old Ryan Robbins is understood to have been clipped by a car's wing mirror while preparing to cross Holtfleet Bridge and remains in hospital with a fractured skull and bruising to the brain. Councillor Peter Tomlinson wished the boy a speedy recovery but said he felt the crash highlights why action needs to be taken to ensure the bridge is safer for motorists and pedestrians. The police shared a dramatic image across social media of an air ambulance making a tricky take-off from the bridge over the River Severn following the incident on Sunday. It's a very narrow bridge with a narrow pavement, said Councillor Tomlinson, who represents the Ombersley Division, which includes Holt. He said the traffic gets busy whether it's the morning or evening on the bridge in question as well as a large number of similar bridges which span the river in the county making them dangerous for pedestrians. There are many people campaigning for a relief road that would take so much traffic off that bridge, he continued. He said whether or not a relief road comes to fruition, the incident is a great reason to take positive steps in the area to divert congestion away from the bridge. It does point up the need for serious action about getting a road bridge that is fit for purpose over the Severn, he added. Writing on Facebook, Colleen Williams said that the A4133 leading up to the bridge past the whole fleet pub is bad for people walking and is such a fast and winding road which with places and blind spots. She said vehicles with extended wing mirrors often overhang pathways even on wider footpaths. Marcus Hayes asked, isn't it time for a separate pedestrian bridge across the river? It's so dangerous to walk the current footpath. Ryan's dad, Brian Robbins, said his son was one lucky lad, having been released from intensive care on Tuesday morning. The teenager was staying at Holtfleet Farm Caravan Park with the family for the bank holiday weekend. He also suffered a right shoulder fracture and lots of other cuts and bruises. Contact police on 101 and quote 0493S of May the 26th if you have any information. A notorious pest weed has been spotted growing on railway tracks close to the heart of Malvern. The plant, called Japanese knotweed, is growing on the western bank of the railway cutting between the Barnards Green Road and Avenue Road railway bridges. Japanese knotweed is described by the Royal Horticultural Society as a fast-growing, and strong clump-forming perennial with tall, dense annual stems. Growth of the weed is renewed each year from the stout, deeply penetrating rhizomes or creeping underground. Because these stems can be up to 10 feet below the ground, the weed is very hard to control 
and eradication requires determination as it is difficult to remove by hand or eradicate with chemicals. Under the Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981, it is an offence to cause Japanese knotweed to grow in the wild. The species is expensive to remove. According to the UK government, the cost of controlling knotweed had hit 1.25 billion by 2014. It costs £70 million to eradicate knotweed from 10 acres of the London 2012 Olympic Games velodrome and aquatic centre. After the infestation was reported to Network Rail, which owns and manages most of the UK's rail infrastructure, a spokesperson for the company said, once reported to us, Japanese knotweed growing on our land is treated for three to five years or until the problem is eradicated. As many gardeners know, Japanese knotweed is invasive, difficult to treat and requires several years of treatment to be effective. Our established regime complies with legislation and helps us run a safe, reliable railway. City cyclists were targeted with drawing pins scattered in front of their path and then filmed by the mindless mindless offenders. One of the cyclists later discovered that he had nine thumbtacks stuck in the wheel following the reckless act on Sunday that could have led to a serious injury of one of the riders. Police are now investigating the incident that follows reports of cyclists being targeted nationwide, including reportedly at the Velo race held in the county. Ian Buchanan from St John's Cycling Club said, There was ten of us in the group out on a ride, and the first incident happened at 9.45 near Powick roundabout at Hanley Castle. A silver BMW was in front and a handful of tacks were thrown out of the window. There were shouts of tacks to warn others. Three of the riders suffered punctures. Mr Buchanan said on the way back, they then came across another group who were roadside and who had also been targeted by tax. One of the cyclists had nine drawing pins in a tyre, he said. They came back filming the cyclists. This was dangerous, no thought for the safety of riders. They might have thought they were having a bit of a laugh, but someone could have come off their bike and take out a group with them. In total, they've cost hundreds of pounds in damage. Paul Sovsk, who deals with youth development at the club, said, It is deeply concerning hundreds of pins were thrown. We were travelling uphill when the tacks were thrown. It's every cyclist's worst nightmare to be going downhill at speed and a tyre blown up. There was the potential for a serious accident. It was obviously premeditated and planned. They were driving round looking for cyclists. Another of the riders on the St. John's Cycling Club Facebook page, Andy Turner, added, One can only wonder why these sad individuals would want to do something like this. West Mersey and police were unavailable for comment. Anyone with information is asked to call the police on 101, quoting 232S on June the 2nd. We're going on to the sport, and, and the first article is um, one about the Worcester Warriors. Worcester Warriors has reported a pre-tax loss of £5.8 million for a challenging 2017-18 season. 
but the club's financial position has improved compared to the 2016-17 campaign when they lost £8.1 million. Turnover has also increased by £1.4 million to £12.2 million, courtesy of further, a further £1.2 million in central funding and extra sponsorship. Administrative expenses dropped from £16.4 million to £15.3, which includes wages of £10.7 million. The latest accounts published two months after the deadline cover the year ending June 30, 2018, when the club was still up for sale. It read, Our 2017-18 season was challenging, but after an impressive performance in the second half of the season, we retained our position in the Premiership for a fourth successive season. The owners of the club are committed to investing in the coaching of all teams, the improvement of the stadium and facilities and ensuring funding the first team to the full salary cap. A year after being put on the market by Six Ways Holdings Limited, the club was bought by a consortium led by Jed McCrory in September 28, 2018. According to the 38-page annual report on financial statements for WRFC Trading Limited, the majority shareholding was purchased by Militibus Quanco Limited for a consideration of a pound. It added all land and property was transferred to WRFC Trading Limited. The land and property was subsequently transferred to MQ Property Co Limited for £6.25 million before then being leased on a 999-year term to Link Corporate Trustees UK Limited and then leased back to WRFC Trading Limited on a 175-year lease. Following the takeover in September, Cecil Duckworth, John Crabtree, Anthony Glossop and Gus Mackay resigned as directors with immediate effect before former chairman Bill Bolsover stepped down in January this year. Colin Goldring and Jason Whittingham, who also run Morecambe Football Club, were appointed onto the executive board in October and named co-owners along with McCrory. The latest financial report stated... Since 28th of September 2018, the majority shareholding was transferred and the immediate parent undertaking is now Miltibus Quanco Limited. There is no controlling party. The report also revealed how much money the club had received from private equity firm CVC, Capital Partners, which secured a partnership deal with Premiership Rugby earlier this year. It read... On March the 29th, a deal involving CVC Capital Partners Fund, investing in a 27% stake in Premier Rugby Limited, was finalised and the club has received significant cash inflow from this transaction. The inflow amounted to a net amount of £8.2 million. The Worcester News has previously reported that Warriors are proposing to build a new north stand with a hotel that could increase the capacity at six ways from 11,500 to 16,500. Under the title Future Developments, the director's report stated, The business remains committed to the long-term vision of becoming a sustainable premiership club with aspirations of competing at the very highest level. 
by continued investment in the first team, development of the academy and a fresh approach to nurturing and developing the women's team. While focusing on all rugby teams activity, we will also look to now develop the non-rugby related commercial activity, including major events along with the entire six-way suite, building a sporting and commercial hub that will return a significant income for the club, ensuring we work towards self-sustainability. We will also invest into broadening the support base and improving the fan experience in and around the stadium, working with the community and our foundation to develop an all-inclusive experience. Now on to cricket. Wayne Parnell has already made a big impact in his first full season with Worcestershire and says he has become a smarter cricketer after playing in various tournaments around the world. The 29-year-old arrived at Blackfinch New Road on the back of stints in the Afghanistan Premier League, the Shahyar 10-10 T10 League, the Bangladesh Premier League and Pakistan Super League during the winter. South African Parnell, who has signed a three-year deal as Colpac player at Blackfinch New Road, finished as the county's leading wicket-taker in the Royal London One Day Cup with 22 victims in nine games. Only Lancashire paceman Sakib Mahmood, 28-10, and Nathan Souter, 25-9, picked up more wickets in the competition. But Parnell then transferred his fine form to the county championship with a half-century and a 5-4 against Lancashire at Emirates Old Trafford. A hamstring injury ruled him out of this week's home clash with Middlesex, but he is expected to return to action sooner rather than later. Parnell said, I'm a person who likes learning and experiencing different things, chatting to people from different parts of the world. That is probably one thing I've taken from the last six months, going to different places, playing alongside some really fine cricketers. I try to find out what they do and see if I can nitpick certain things and add them to my game. Over the last 12 to 18 months, I've become smarter as a cricketer. I think that is the key thing. When you get older and start playing more games, your skill improves, but you also become smarter in terms of when you use it. Over the last couple of years, I've known my brain more, and that will hold me in good stead. Parnell was part of the Worcestershire Rapid side who won the Vitality Blast for the first time last season when he was their second highest wicket taker behind Pat Brown. They crossed the finishing line to triumph in a major competition after several near misses and it is a scenario Parnell has experienced during his career. He said, I have won a few trophies. With the Chevrolet Warriors, we actually won two trophies in one season and it was a similar thing to uh, with Worcestershire where we had been close in the semis and finals a couple of times. When actually winning a trophy, the belief grows in the group and hopefully that is the same story here in that once you know what it takes to get over the line, you can work towards doing it over and over again. The county have a 10-day break from action after the match with Middlesex 
before they face Lancashire in the return meeting at Blackfinch New Road on Monday, June the 10th. The vicar has been licensed at an unusual site, a local pub, as churchgoers lost their place of worship years ago after the building was demolished. Holy Trinity in St Matthew's Church in Ronxwood has been holding services in a skittle alley at the Punch Bowl in Litchfield Avenue since 2014 after the churchgoers were made homeless following the demolition of its building. It is quite different, says Reverend Rob Farmer, who was installed at the Punch Bowl pub in Worcester yesterday. Reverend Farmer, who was ordained 13 years ago, said, If you told me 13 years ago that I would be installed at a pub, I would have laughed my socks off. I wanted to help this church as it has had its issues and struggles with putting the new building up. At the end of the day, it's a struggle as we rely on voluntary donations, so it's hard to put another building in place. From what I've seen, a lot of people are interested in what the church members are up to and the development of the building. For us, church is a lot more than having a service every Sunday. We hope to improve people's lives and provide for the community. Churchgoers now gather in various different locations in the community for their meetings and services, while funds are being raised for the new building, which will provide a new multi-use building to serve the congregation and community. The community have been fundraising to rebuild the church on the site, which was affectionately known as the Drum. Around £90,000 has been raised so far towards the £1 million target needed. Reverend Farmer, aged 54, added, We have still got a long way to go. We have a vision of what we want to achieve and in the future for a new building on the site. It was a 1960s building, so many people in the community are originally, sorry, who originally donated to the building are still supporting the church in the new development. It's heartbreaking for them, really. The drum, which was built in 1965, was described as structurally unsafe, as it had part of its ceiling fall down and suffered from concrete cancer and condensation on the windows. Fortis Living has bought half of the land and have since built properties on the site. The Bishop of Dudley, Graham Usher, installed Reverend Farmer at the Worcester pub yesterday at 3pm. Morgan Cars took to the roads across Worcestershire to celebrate the relaunch of the historic Elgar route. The route, a 37-mile journey around the Morven Hills and County, which follows in the footsteps of the legendary composer Sir Edward Elgar. Key attractions include the Firs, Elgar's birthplace in Lower Broadheath, Great Morven, the Morven Hills, Upton upon Severn and Worcester, starting at Morven College. The cars can also stop at the Great Morven Priory, Black Hill Car Park, Peachfield Common and Cathedral Square. Victoria Carman, Visitor Economy Officer at Morven Hills District Council said, We are so pleased to be involved in giving the new and improved Elgar route the relaunch Sir Edward Elgar so rightfully deserves. Heads were turning when the Morgan rallied toward the route and the Morgan car owners were delighted to help with some great photo opportunities along the way. We want to extend our thanks to everyone involved. Toby Blythe, 
head of marketing at Morgan Motor Company, said the relaunch of the Elgar route is brilliant news for the county. Not only will it allow local residents to discover the origins of Elgar, it will also help to encourage more tourism to the area. The Morgan Factory and Visitors Centre is conveniently located for people looking to take part in the route. Congratulations to MHDC for relaunching the route. Parents of a miracle baby who was born with half a heart have enjoyed a birthday they never imagined they would get to celebrate. Noah Freeman, who celebrated his seventh birthday yesterday, has undergone three major open heart surgeries and countless other procedures. Noah's mum, Sarah Freeman, said, He has a lot of obstacles and is always trying his best to overcome them. His list of diagnoses grows with him. Mrs Freeman added, He has come such a long way. Noah's three open heart surgeries were undergone at ages six days old, five months and two years. The first resulted in complications including brain damage, kidney failure and seizures and the second led to blood in his lungs and one of his lungs collapsing. Mrs Freeman said we never imagined when he was a baby that we would be celebrating his seventh birthday. Noah, who defied the odds by surviving the operations he had when he was a baby, also has ADHD, cerebral palsy and brain damage, which means he has a lot of memory issues and learning difficulties. He will never be able to run, walk far or travel abroad. Mrs Freeman said, We are an extremely tight family, always supporting each other through everything. Noah's strength through everything is amazing, even though he struggles with some of the tests. It doesn't take long for his smile and cheekiness to come back. The hardest part for us is the test he needs, blood, scans, etc., and also the unknown. Noah lives with his mum and dad, Lee, his big brother Riley, aged nine, and little brother Adam, aged three, in St John's. Noah will be celebrating his birthday by having a party with his school friends. Mrs Freeman told the Worcester News, He's a very cheeky chap. He likes to joke around and play. He enjoys playing outside or in the co- on the computer with his friends or brothers. He enjoys school and has some good friends there. He's excited to be starting year two in September. In 2013... Noah was one of the two children who inspired Worcester dad, Andy Kirk, to set up a charity called Little Soldiers, which helps children battling serious conditions. Enjoy a fun day out and celebrate the founding of the RSPCA at a special anniversary event later this month. RSPCA Worcester and Mid-Worcestershire Branch is hosting an anniversary celebration of the founding of the Society on Sunday, June the 16th. The event has been called One Fun Day because 28 branches of the charity are holding events on the same day to mark the anniversary. Geraldine Haynes, branch trustee, said, We warmly invite members of the public to join us on our open day and enjoy some delicious refreshments against the beautiful backdrop of the Malvern Hills. Tea, coffee and a selection of tempting cakes will be available, or pims and prosecco for those who prefer a tipple or two. 
We will be firing up our barbecue and grill to serve our locally renowned hunger-busting vegetarian and vegan burgers. Children are most welcome and will be entertained with face painting and a variety of children's crafts. A meet and greet with members of the team will enable children to learn more about the work we do and the animals in our care. The day includes a raffle and tombola with some fabulous prizes on offer. In order to raise vital funds for the branch's rescue and rehoming centre at the Holdings, visitors will be able to enjoy a cruelty-free day at the races and take advantage of a unique opportunity to participate in a pony cycle racing tournament suitable for both adults and children. For the less adventurous, the branch's newly opened on-site shop will be well stocked with a variety of new and almost new goods to suit every budget. Mrs Haynes said, please come along and support your local RSPCA branch and find out more about the work being done for rescued animals in Worcestershire. The event runs from 10am until 4pm at the Holdings Rescue and Rehoming Centre in Holdings Lane, Broom Hall, Kemsey, Worcester, WR5 3FP. Robin Elt, head of one of the area's oldest family businesses, has died at the age of 73. Together with his daughter Jenny, Mr Elt ran Robin Elt Shoes, which has eight branches across Worcestershire, including the Shambles in Worcester, Herefordshire and Shropshire, and down to Torquay and Totnes in Devon. The pair were the fourth and fifth generation of Elts to run a retail footwear business which will now continue with Jenny at the helm. The company can trace its roots back to a small shop selling good boots for ladies and gentlemen which was opened in the Shambles, Worcester in 1824 by William Webley. In 1872 the business was purchased by Albert Edward Elt and his wife Eliza who began its steady growth by purchasing the next-door property, a public house called the Market Tavern. This led to the creation of one of the most recognisable shop fronts in the Shambles, with Elts standing opposite Three Shambles Market Hall. At the end of the 1960s, Roy Elt, Robin's father, merged the business with Church Group's retail division, which operated in Worcester in the former Elts shop as Jones Bookmaker sorry, bootmaker, and Robin went on to become branded buying, branded buying director for the whole group. In 1991, he took back the Elt shops in Malvern and Lempster to resume independent retailing, and since then Robin Elt Shoes has gone from strength to strength. In last year's National Footwear Industry Awards, it was shortlisted in five categories and Jenny Elt attended the event in Birmingham's National Conference Centre to collect the Men's Independent Footwear Retailer of the Year Award. The company had previously won Outdoor One Outdoor Retailer of the Year and Best Independent Retailer of the Year, making it one of the most successful independent footwear retailers in the country. Mr Elt lived in Church Street, Malvern. His wife Diana said, Robin was diagnosed with cancer 18 months ago, but carried on in the business for as long as he could. He died peacefully in Worcestershire Royal Hospital. Robin Elt's funeral will be, will be private, but a memorial service is to be held in Worcester at a date to be announced. He leaves a wife, Diana, daughter Jenny, 
and grandson William. The annual Droitwich Spa Food and Drink Festival is being held in the town's historic Lido Park later this month. This year's programme promises more food, entertainment and fun, with a jam-packed lineup being held over two days. Nearly 100 food and drink stalls will be in place across the weekend running from 10am on Saturday, June the 22nd, with entertainment through to 9pm in the evening. The fun will continue from 10am until 5pm on the Sunday. Now in its seventh year, the Droitwich Spa Food and Drink Festival is a foodie haven with a host of local award-winning products. The festival has a strong emphasis on local producers, with almost 90% of exhibitors coming from within a 30-mile radius of the town itself. There will be entertainment on the bandstand featuring Come Together, Chloe Chadwick, the Coventry Brass Band and Jazz Alchemy. A chili eating competition will be presented by the Clifton on Chili Club from YouTube, which is free to enter. However, it's not for the faint-hearted. The Love Food Roadshow will feature a full lineup of expert chefs presenting live cooking demonstrations in the outdoor kitchen. Demonstrations will include a masterclass in making cocktails, a champagne tasting session and an array of sweet baked goods. There will also be entertainment for the children, such as bumper cars and boot camps. The town will be celebrating its heritage of Droitwich Salt with the A Salt course on offer for the whole family with personal trainer Clive Sanders of Sanders Fitness Leading Procedures. A city council is set to make a significant amount from selling off green space to allow 25 affordable homes to be built. Councillors are set to approve a plan this week, which means part of Sanctuary Park in St John's would be handed over to Housing Association Fortis Living to build 25 affordable houses and apartments. The controversial and much-delayed plan was eventually approved by Worcester City Council Committee in March, but only after several deferrals. The original 37-home plan was deferred at two City Council planning meetings in August and October last year, with the latter postponement to give the Council a chance to carry out in-depth flooding studies on the popular dog-walking spot. The plan was eventually reduced to 25 homes. The plan also received significant objection from users of the park off Hopton Street and neighbours who feared St John's would be losing yet more green space. The amount the council would make from the sale is currently confidential but has been called significant in a report due to be discussed by the City Council's Policy and Resources Committee on Tuesday, June the 4th. More than £1 million was made available by the City Council in 2013 to housing providers to bid for and to help build more affordable homes. The Council invited housing providers to put forward plans to build homes on three Council-owned sites, including Ambrose Close, Tinton Avenue and Hopton Street and Cabinet. 
having listened to bids for all three sites, opted for Hopton Street as most suitable. The council moved ahead with the Fortis plan to build 37 homes on the green space, which the council had held for potential allotment expansion, with the council planning to put forward £300,000 of its affordable housing bid fund. Negotiations between Fortis now means none of the council's affordable housing fund would be used. House building on Sanctuary Park requires the demolition of an existing Fortis-owned home in Hopton Street to gain access. Not selling the land to Fortis would mean its home in Hopton Street would remain making it difficult to access for the council or a different housing provider or developer, the council said. The council would also receive money through council tax and money from the government through the new homes bonus scheme. Michael Spicer, Baron Spicer, who served the county in Parliament for over 30 years, has died, aged 76. Lord Spicer served as MP for the area between 1974 and 2010 and died on May the 29th after suffering from Parkinson's and leukaemia. His widow, Patricia Ann Hunter, paid tribute to the amazing husband and wonderful father, saying he had remained involved in politics until his death. A statement released on behalf of the family said, Anne, the wife of Lord Michael Spicer, and her family wish to announce that Michael died peacefully this morning in hospital after a long illness. They are sure that many will be sad to hear the news. They would be grateful for a few moments' privacy whilst they take into account what has happened. Lady Spicer said, He has been the most amazing husband and a wonderful father, and he has done a lot politically, as well as a lot of painting and artwork as well. Former Malvern Hills District Councillors Roger Hall-Jones and Paul Tuthill both paid tribute to Lord Spicer. Mr Hall-Jones said, I remember when Michael was selected... I was chairman of the Young Conservatives and had just been elected to the District Council. He was a very calm, dependable MP for the region. He was also a keen supporter of the local Conservative Party for many years and would regularly support our meetings and events. I always had very pleasant dealings with him and it is very sad to hear this news. Mr Tuttill said... He worked extremely hard as MP for the region and had very strong views on the European Union, so it is a shame that he has passed away before we left. His successor for West Worcestershire, Harriet Baldwin, said, Michael was always so kind to me when I was the candidate for his patch for four years, from 2006 to 2010. After I was elected, I continued to solicit his wise counsel. Worcester MP Robin Walker said, Michael Spicer was a kind man and always a friendly face in Westminster or Worcestershire. Lord Spicer founded the Conservative Party's European Research Group in 1993, as well as serving as chairman of the 1922 committee from 2001 to 2010. After studying economics at Cambridge, Lord Spicer worked for the Statist, the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times as a financial journalist. He was elected to Parliament in 1974 as MP for South Worcestershire until boundary changes abolished the constituency and he moved across to West Worcestershire. He was also Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party.
A signpost has been ripped out of the ground in Worcester and a fence located nearby has been torn down. But mystery surrounds what has happened in the area. The signpost in Hilton Road, adjacent to Sabrina Bridge, has been pulled up out of the ground while a fence situated in between the bridge and Worcester University Arena has been knocked down. An electric supply box has also been knocked over and the bark of a tree has been damaged. It is unknown what the cause is of the damage or whether it was all damaged at the same time or in the same way. However, a maintenance team from highways are set to investigate the issue according to Worcester County Council. The vandalism was only reported to Worcestershire County Council on Wednesday, June the 5th, despite eyewitnesses claiming the signpost was ripped out over a week ago. A spokesman from the County Council said we can confirm that this has been highlighted to us this morning and the issues have been referred to our maintenance team for them to investigate and resolve. No information was passed to us on how the sign was damaged. And that nearly brings us to the end of um, tonight's uh, paper. Um, just to remind you, lighting up time is 21.25 to 4.30. Um, we wish to um, wish a happy birthday to Moira Lowe on the 14th and Elizabeth Bayo on the 15th of June. So um, many happy returns to those two. If anybody else has a birthday and we haven't mentioned it, please let us know because we'd love to wish you a happy birthday on air. Um, just an announcement of uh, what's on. The Bluebell Music Special, which is on Friday the 19th of July at the Bluebell in Callow End, WR24TY. Um, the, it's it's uh, live music to the Cocktail Hour Band and the... It's a luncheon do, which is £10 per ticket, and the proceeds are going to go to fundraising for the talking newspaper. So um, final bookings are on the 12th of June, uh, sorry, the 21st of June. So please um, do let us know if you'd like to attend. The emergency phone numbers uh, for out-of-hours medical assistance is 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. is 03001233211 and the NHS number for non-emergency help is 111. Malvern Theatres is 01684 Worcester Live is 611429 and that covers the Swan and Huntington Hall. Worcester Hub number for Council Matters is 765-765 or 722233. Crime Stoppers is 0800-555-111. Our telephone number is 01905-767766 and our address is 11 Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. Our uh, website address is www. WorcesterTalkingNews.org.uk, on which you can find all the recordings for the weekly news and monthly magazines and much more. Um, we gratefully uh, value your feedback, likes or dislikes, or changes you might like to make. Just let us know by phone or pop a note into your envelopes, and we'd love to hear from you. 
Um, just also a reminder that the thought of the day and the obituaries are after the final music um, by request of a lot of uh, listeners. day proverbs 15 verses 1 to 3 a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger the tongue of the wise adores knowledge but the mouth of the fool gushes folly the eyes of the lord are everywhere keeping watch on the wicked and the good and now for the obituaries gordon clark master baker or founder of colston bakeries passed away peacefully on may the 17th aged 86 a Thanksgiving service will take place at St. Gabriel's Church, Hanley Swan, on June the 12th at 3pm. Anthony Fogel, known as Tony, passed away peacefully in hospital, aged 70. Funeral inquiries to E. Hill and Sons Funeral Directors in Pershaw, telephone number 01386 552141. Beryl Foster of Peopleton passed away on May the 24th, aged 84. The funeral service is at the Vale Crematorium in Fladbury on June the 5th at 2pm. Basil Glover passed away on May the 23rd, aged 86. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 11th at 10.45. Laura Jane Harris, nay King, passed away on May the 23rd, aged 54. The funeral service is at Hallow Church on June the 7th at 2pm. Colin Roy James passed away peacefully at home at St John's, aged 76. Family funeral will be held on June the 11th. All are welcome from 4pm at the Brunswick Arms. Linda Moogan passed away peacefully on May the 18th, aged 72. The funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 7th at 1130 Derek Morris, known as Bill, passed away peacefully on May the 17th, aged 64. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 7th at 3.15. Rachel O'Sullivan passed away on May the 9th, aged 69. A service to celebrate her life will be held on June the 4th at 1.45 at Worcester Crematorium. Raymond William Ricketts died peacefully on May the 25th at Waterside care home in Lysinton, aged 86. The funeral service is at the Vale Crematorium in Evesham Road, Fladbury, on June the 7th at 4pm. Thomas von Poroi, I'll spell that, P-O-K-O-R-N-Y, passed away peacefully on May the 12th, aged 83. The funeral service is at St. Philip's and St. James Church, Whittington, on June the 7th at 1130 Michael John Bryant, known as Mick, passed away peacefully at home on May the 22nd, aged 75. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 10th at 12.15. Patricia, I beg your pardon, I think that was June the 16th at 12.15. Patricia Pat K. 
Kale, nay Holloway, aged 85, passed away on May the 26th. The funeral arrangements are to follow. Michael Cronin, known as Mick, passed away on May the 16th, aged 88. The funeral is at St. George's Catholic Church in Worcester on June the 17th at 10.30. Edna Irene Ballard, aged 80. The funeral service on the 21st of June at 2.30 at Worcester Crematorium. Sylvia Edith Rosemary Boswell died on May the 11th. The funeral service is on June the 10th at Worcester Crematorium at 10.45. Gavin Roger Simmons passed away on May the 20th, age 44. The funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on June the 11th at 2.30. Pauline Margaret Ashby passed away on May the 11th, age 74. The funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on June the 12th at 1 p.m. John Red Reginald Fudger passed away on May the 11th. The funeral is at Colchester Crematorium on June the 10th at 10.15. Elsie Margaret Hemming passed away on May the 12th at Red Hill Care Home, age 90. The funeral service will be held on June the 19th at St. Clement's Church, Henwick Road, Worcester, at 1 p.m. Norman, Norman Hetherington, former employee of Hennens and Archdales, passed away on May the 20th, age 94. The funeral services at Worcester Crematorium on June the 12th at 1.45. Howard John Taylor passed away on May the 17th, aged 91. The funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 12th at 3.15. Bert Brain passed away peacefully on June the 4th, aged 84. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 11th at 1pm. Howard David Weaver passed away at the Royal Worcester Hospital on May the 30th, aged 76. The funeral is at Worcester Crematorium on June the 24th at 12.15. We wish all the family um, our deepest sympathies.